Welcome to the Mindful Life Podcast. Join me, your host, Marianne Eve, mental health social worker and mindfulness educator, as I navigate living my best life with the intention to educate and raise the collective consciousness around the benefits of living a mindful life. Each week via the Mindful Life Podcast, I will bring to you a range of content, including special guests that explore mindfulness, mindset, and mental health. Are you feeling tired or are you under stress? Are you overloaded or just generally feeling overwhelmed? Well, I'm really excited to share a very special stress reduction tool that I've been using and recommending to my clients for a number of years. Calm is the number one app for meditation, relaxation and sleep. With over 21 million downloads and achieving the Apple App of the Year in 2017, Calm is so perfectly aligned with all that I do as a mental health professional and all that I teach here at the Mindful Life Podcast. It is the perfect stress relief strategy and the perfect mindfulness tool. The app has so many fantastic and easy to use features, including Daily Calm, a brand new 10 minute meditation every day, 100 plus guided meditations covering anxiety, focus, gratitude, and so much more. 80 plus sleep stories to settle the mind and relax the body. Exclusive music tracks for focus, relaxation, and sleep. Calm Masterclass featuring world-renowned mindfulness experts. My personal favorites include sleep stories, and I've recently discovered Calm Music, which I have on a continuous loop at my practice, in counseling sessions, and in classes. I also love the Calm Masterclass videos, which cover some fantastic topics, including gratitude, happiness, and mindful eating. And not to mention all the great features the app now offers for kids, including sleep stories, meditations, and lullabies. I'm so very excited to be partnering with Calm to bring you, my listeners, some amazing offers. Calm is so generously offering the Mindful Life podcast listeners a free four-week subscription to the Calm Premium app. All you need to do is head to the following link, calm.com forward slash calm health trial. That's calm.com forward slash calm health trial and just follow the prompts to enjoy your free four-week trial of calm premium you'll be feeling calm relaxed and at peace in no time the mindful life podcast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded We recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Please be advised that the subject and the content of today's podcast may be distressing for some listeners. There will be discussions along with personal accounts of the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires. Please exercise listener discretion. This episode is unsuitable for children. And if you feel that you may be upset or triggered by listening, you may want to consider whether this episode is suitable for you. A 
Australian mental health telephone numbers are also listed in the show notes if you do require some support or assistance. Hello and thanks for joining me for episode number 20 of the Mindful Life podcast. In today's episode, I talk a little more about Black Saturday and I share my story. 10 years ago on February the 7th, 2009, Australia's worst natural disaster hit the Australian state of Victoria. The 400 fires that burnt out of control that day caused much destruction and devastation and my small mountain community of King Lake was severely impacted. Today you'll hear my thoughts and my personal account of what it was like to live through this experience and beyond with two small children. I'll also talk about the tough decisions that were made under pressure and the ongoing challenges of not only resuming a normal life but the challenge also of leaving this event in the past. Ultimately, an event of that magnitude can be hard to recover from and trauma itself can be hard to leave behind. It is a wound that can split open and be triggered sometimes when you least expect it. But if we are gentle with ourselves and we practice self-compassion and gratitude and of course access support when we need it, this can help us to move into acceptance, recover and continue to move forward and work towards living our best life again. 10 years on from Black Saturday, it's so hard to believe, but it's one of those things really, it feels like it's flown and it also feels like it's dragged. My children are now 14 and 18, they were 4 and 8 at the time of the fires. They're both doing really well, confident, self-assured, determined and ambitious. I remember reading an article after Black Saturday about a study done on the children who survived the Ash Wednesday fires in 1983. These were fires that occurred in another part of Victoria, in the Dandenongs. This longitudinal study found that many of the children who lived through those fires went on to be afraid to take risks. Some didn't go to university, they didn't travel, and they married young, and they settled for jobs rather than careers. So in summary, because of their experiences, the study found that they were hesitant to live large, that their anxiety prevented them from moving outside their comfort zone. This study in this article really stuck in my mind. So I was determined for that not to be the legacy for my kids. So I think in hindsight we succeeded and I'll see, I'll see if I can track down that research um, or the article and put it in the show notes because I think it's really relevant um, in learning uh, how we can help our kids post-trauma, how we can help them work through those anxieties and move outside their comfort zone and live their best lives. So we now no longer live in King Lake. We left uh, the mountain 18 months ago to live at the bottom of the King Lake mountain. The reason we left was unrelated to the fires. However, for me, truth be told, my heart in some ways left the King Lake mountain long before we as a family left. I believe the mountain for me did not really feel like home again post-fires. So now as the anniversary hits, I have a ball of anxiety in my stomach and I'm on edge. Of course, there's still sadness and there's still pain. There'll always be pain. These feelings are always more acute as the anniversary approaches. So it's a challenge for me at times as I try hard to be about moving forward, Um, you know, especially given that I am a mindfulness uh, practitioner. This is the work I do. So sometimes it's really hard to practice what you preach. Uh, And given that this was such a big event that occurred in my life, I think it makes it even harder. But reflecting on the work that psychologist Brene Brown 
has done um, about trauma and remembering the wound versus uh, becoming the wound. She talks about this idea of remembering the wound versus becoming the wound. She says it's important that when we remember a traumatic memory, that we be conscious that we are remembering something that occurred in the past and not fall into feeling triggered and re-experiencing the feelings of the original trauma. So rather than remembering the wound, we can fall into this trap of becoming the wound again. So this year, this is where I have tried really hard to be, to just remember the wound and not become it again. Um, Because I think for so long, I have fallen back into becoming the wound again in the lead up and even beyond. The anniversary can send me spiraling down. Um, Of course, this is easier said than done. As when we're triggered, it may be a fight for us to pull ourselves back. So I think using self-talk and self-reassurance can help. Um, I tell myself that, yes, it was a painful event. It was a sad event. But then I tell myself that I'm safe and happy uh, in this moment and that the event is in the past. So I move myself away from making stories in my mind about what happened that day. And I move myself away from remembering those stories wherever possible. I try hard to just let the trauma be in the past. For some time after the fires, a few years in fact, I had regret and I ruminated on all the what-ifs and the I should have done. That day we put our lives and our children's life at risk and for a while I had immense guilt over that. I also had survivor guilt and guilt over my home not being destroyed. So at times I also felt unworthy um, of the pain I was feeling. I hadn't lost my family and I hadn't lost my house and my possessions so feeling that, that pain of loss, um, I often compared myself to others who had lost, lost much more. So yeah, I often felt that um, my pain wasn't as valid as theirs. As a health professional, I understood that these issues and these feelings were a part of the recovery process and that they were normal feelings and that eventually uh, these feelings would pass. I now look back just briefly and realise it happened and nothing can be changed. And I know what I did um, on the day. I did everything that I thought was right. I did the best I knew how and the best I was capable of at the time during the recovery process. I think being a mental health worker made it harder as I knew what I was meant to be doing. But I was also human with normal, normal feelings, human feelings. I know as a parent, I dropped the ball Uh, for a number of years post-fires and it probably sounds like I'm being quite hard on myself. I think parenting was was very hard post-fires. My my kids were struggling and I was struggling. I feel I was barely able to show up, uh, let alone to be the perfect parent and the perfect wife. It was hard. Uh, It was really hard to to fulfil the responsibilities of those roles uh, post-fires. But this is where self-compassion kicks in. We all did our best. Uh, We all had to come back from a horrific and a life-changing event. And it took a lot of time, a lot of self-compassion and a lot of patience and a lot of support from those around us. So today I'm going to share my story. And as I think about doing this, I feel physically sick. I've not read or told this story for many years. Um, I've shared it in a number of forums, so it's out there. But there's a lot of details that I have forgotten and that um, I don't remember until I read them again. So it is triggering and it is re-traumatizing. 
Uh, so I'll try and hold it together. Um, if there's tears, just bear with me. I'll do my best. I'm human and my vulnerabilities make me even more human, uh, which is something that I do want to show and illustrate in this podcast that I'm not just a mental health worker, that I am a human being who, who has had real experiences as well. So the guts of this story was written, written two weeks post-fires. Uh, I just had to get it down before I forgot, as I knew I would never remember the details as time passed. My knowledge of trauma is that if something is too traumatic, the conscious mind won't record it. However, I also understand that it may still be sitting in the subconscious mind, just waiting to come out as a memory uh, from time to time or in dreams or the like. So this particular version that I read out was published over various timelines, um, initially six months on, and then I think 12 months on and then two years on, it was featured um, in a couple of local publications and in a sports magazine. So it's a moment in time and where I was at at that time. Writing was therapeutic for me. Um, after the fires, uh, it was something that really helped me helped me get through, getting it out on paper. Uh, I quoted Lady Gaga in a previous episode where she said something along the lines of songwriting um, as going into the deepest pain in her life and opening up that pain and sharing that pain. So I keep coming back to this quote and to this notion. For me, writing is the same. It definitely can help. It can be therapeutic, um, but I think it can also really open the wound and evoke pain as well. My story, rising from the ashes. Not so long ago, during one of the worst bushfire seasons on record, a number of towns suffered the devastation that comes with the loss of property and tragically the loss of life. But from such great tragedy, many find an inner strength within themselves to rise up and live their lives bigger and better than before. That dreaded February day in Australian history that was to be forever referred to as Black Saturday started like any other for us in our beautiful mountain community of King Lake. All the usual weekend routines except that it was hot, damn hot, in fact unseasonably hot. King Lake Rangers is a mountain community made up of a number of smaller communities. It's approximately 70 kilometres from the Melbourne CBD. It is well known for its cold, misty weather in the mid-year and winter often brings snow and pea soup fog that can linger for days on end. Summer is historically cooler than Metro Melbourne, but not the late summer of 2009. At the time of the fires, my husband and I had lived in King Lake for five years. We had built our home and started our life there when I was heavily pregnant with our second child. As most young families do, and in particular mums, I became immersed in my community. Playgroup play dates, helping out at school. Everyone was very welcoming and friendly. 2006 brought our first taste of bushfire. This fire came within just a few hundred metres of our home. However, it was a slow-moving fire and with only a shed lost, this was still unsettling for us with a five-year-old and a one-year-old. We evacuated without a second thought. On the day of February 7th, we spent the morning indoors to escape the heat. At 2.30pm, we received news from a friend who had a contact in the Country Fire Authority that said fire was heading up the mountain and all reports were that it was going to, inverted commas, wipe King Lake off the map. We had been watching the CFA site and listened to 
listening to the local emergency radio where nothing much was being reported except for a couple of incidents a few towns away. Nonetheless, I was still worried as I had work colleagues living in those towns and it felt too close for comfort. My husband, Sean, went for a drive, returning soon after with the news of a huge plume of smoke that appeared to be kilometres away. Our afternoon dragged on, still with little to no news of the impending doom. Then the power went out. We both agreed this was not a good sign, as we are on water t tank water, and no power means no water. We decided to pack a few things and head to my sister's home in Seymour, which is around about an hour away inland. We went in separate cars. The children were with me and Sean was in his ute. Both cars were packed with a few precious items, clothes and, of course, the kids' guinea pigs. News had been filtering through on local radio that many roads were closed due to fire. We needed to know which of the four exits off the mountain was the safest, so we agreed to head up the main street to the CFA to seek advice. We were completely oblivious that more than half of King Lake was already on fire at this stage. I went ahead with the girls and Sean remained behind to check on our elderly neighbour. He later told me that the last thing he saw was, his, was the girls and myself driving away as embers were falling like rain. He became frantic. As I drove up towards the main street, there was fire everywhere. It felt like a dream and the sky had turned black. Needless to say, we did not make it to the CFA. Sean and I turned around and headed down a dirt road towards Ye, which is just a, um, it's a town about half an hour away inland, to safety. My girls were huddled together crying in the back seat, but thankfully the further away we got from King Lake, the lighter the sky became and the smoke became less visible. We finally arrived in Ye and had been a slow, long convoy of horse floats, caravans and boats being towed. We were greeted with absolute chaos. There were people everywhere and thankfully lots of familiar faces. News began to filter through very fast about property loss and tragically the loss of lives. We quickly learnt the scale and the magnitude of what had occurred that day. We were later offered a small piece of floor for the night and beds for our children at a local couple's home. We'd never met them before, along with a number of our other King Lakers. It was the true kindness of strangers. We learnt within 24 hours that our home had survived. This was little comfort and consolation as by all reports most of our community had been raised and the loss of life was insurmountable. A house full of children burnt to death in a safe brick house. A mother losing her two children. Whole families perishing huddled together in their homes. We began to wish we had lost our home. I in particular was suffering with a type of survivor guilt. We were without power for roughly 10 days post-fire. Initially we were told it was going to be much longer and we decided that the children and I would stay away from King Lake until the power returned. Sean, however, chose to return home within 24 hours of the fires as he wanted to protect our home from the possibility of further flare-ups and sadly looters Yes, this disaster brought out the good in people through donations and support, but unfortunately it also at times brought out the worst with looters in force. Sean went into home protection mode as he bought a whole lot of firefighting equipment. I think this was possibly his way of coping at the time. The girls and I finally returned home. Nothing could have prepared me for what I saw. My town was like a war zone. It was as if a bomb had gone off. 
As far as the eye could see, there was rubble, tin, dust, burnout cars and fallen trees on the ground. The smell was a horrific smell that would remain with me for a long time. A smell of burning. The army had taken up residence in the main street with a giant tent providing meals and support services and entertaining the kids. Our mountain was declared a crime scene and all residents were required to wear red wristbands similar to a hospital bracelet in order to get back onto the mountain each time we left. Police checkpoints were set up at each exit in order to reduce looting and the media circus coming in. The wristbands branded us as bushfire survivors. The only people allowed on the mountain were those with the red wristband. The mountain was effectively closed to the public. We felt alone and we felt isolated. We were to wear these wristbands for the next six weeks. The cleanup did not begin until three months post-fire as forensic police needed to sift through the rubble looking for remains to identify those who perished. The rubble was a daily reminder of our pain and those we had lost. My husband and I knew that we needed to get back to normal and back to our routine. We both had to return to work, but it was hard with no childcare and no school, as they had both been lost in the fires. In some ways, Sean was the lucky one, as he returned to work before I did. My employers were providing counselling to the families and the children post-fires, and they graciously gave me six weeks off. It was needed because we had a four-year-old who had severe separation anxiety and was not sleeping. She struggled to make sense of the fact that her best friend from childcare had perished in the fires, along with her baby sister, their parents and their dogs. Both our children needed one of us with them 24-7, and this was predominantly to be my job at this time. At the time, I felt broken. My community had lost 505 homes, and there were 120 deaths in King Lake. 33 of these of whom were known to us and many of those 33 were children. I felt unable to manage my own grief and, the, and my own emotions, let alone the emotions and the grief of my children. A makeshift temporary childcare service and school eventually formed which brought some normality back into the lives of the children. I would drop them off each day and then like most of the other mums who I was sure like me, were dangerously teetering on the edge of a diagnosis of PTSD, I would crawl back under the doona and lose myself in the pain of traumatic grief. I could not get the images of children burning to death out of my head. I had so much guilt around that unnecessary. Danger that I placed my children in when we, when we fled our home. Given that we later found out that our home was safe from danger that day, the fire actually came within 500 metres of our property. I continued to have nightmares about the four of us being incinerated in our car, waking up disoriented and terrified. I remained locked in my grief and pain and around six weeks after the fires, Sean began to run. He would just go for hours in the dark, in the freezing cold, sleet and snow. He'd put a headlamp on and he would go. I quickly realised that this was his therapy. I had shut down emotionally. I felt numb. 
around 12 weeks post fires, I returned to work at the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service and this was where I felt the numbest. We were working with children and families who were severely traumatised by the fires. It could have been my own child. Thankfully, I was given a different caseload and I didn't work with the children who had been through the fires. I lasted around another 12 months in this role before I took up an unrelated post in Melbourne. As I wasn't coping around this time, I had begun to see a psychologist. A short time later, a gym opened in the community, which was to the credit of the owners who had also lost their home in the fires. They opened a small gym that would be instrumental in supporting the community in their fire recovery. Sean and I both joined the gym. We had both pretty much done nothing for around 10 years other than the odd uh, session um, other than the odd season of sporadic footy or netball between us. Our evening drink, drinking reduced markedly. This had become a coping mechanism. And we both began to attend the gym religiously. The support I found here was wonderful, mainly other mums who were also lost in their grief. We found, a support, uh, we found support and motivation in each other. So the months passed and our community was slowly getting back to a different kind of normal. Progress was slow, but things were happening Unfortunately, many relationships broke down after the fires, family violence and substance misuse uh, escalated, as did suicide rates. The support was there, but often people felt too incapacitated to access it. I think I'm fortunate to have a very thick-skinned and dedicated husband. He did well to weather the storm. I guess a rock-solid relationship that spanned 19 years was capable of enduring a bit of a battering. So life for us continued, Sean putting one foot in front of the other, happy and content as long as he was surrounded by his girls. The children were mostly settled. I continued therapy with the psychologist and I began to run. My world suddenly changed as I discovered trails in the nearby national park and state forest. The landscapes here were slowly recovering and regenerating. I could relate. I felt like I had a new lease on life. Uh, Sean would often join me for a run on his days off or if uh, he was rained out at work. We would go for hours discovering trails and getting muddy. It was bliss. I began to feel like I was coming out of my coma. I set a couple of goals of running some half marathons and Sean and I both continued at the gym. Our fitness journeys continued and although there were battles ahead, all in all we were back on track. We'd been through the worst and we had survived. So there still are difficulties and challenges. Uh, there are moments of crippling sadness for me, but they happen less often as time goes on. We have been on an intense journey as a family, but life goes on and we were very lucky that day. We didn't lose our home and more importantly, we didn't lose our lives. We have a rich and full life. We have learnt to not take life and all the opportunities it has to offer for granted. And of course, we continue to count our blessings every day. So thanks for stopping by to listen to the final episode in the series of episodes I've published to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Black Saturday. As you can uh, hear by listening, this one was pretty personal for me as I wiped the tears. Um, it was pretty raw um, sharing my story and that moment in time post Black Saturday fires. So if you have learnt something today or you found it helpful, please feel free to share this episode. You never know, it just might help or even enlighten someone else. 
And if you are listening via a podcast that allows you to leave a review, please consider leaving a few kind, encouraging words and hitting those stars. And until next time, may you have peace in your thoughts and your hearts and share it with others. If for any reason you have found the content of today's podcast triggering or distressing in any way, please consider accessing some professional support. Australian mental health telephone support numbers are listed in the show notes. You've been listening to the Mindful Life podcast with your host, Marianne Eve, mental health social worker and mindfulness educator. If you'd like further information or you'd like to connect, feel free to make contact via Facebook or Instagram under the handle Mindful Life Podcast or via email mindfullifepodcast at gmail.com.